This is the Hockey News Podcast. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Hockey News Podcast. It's Matt Larkin here. It's Ken Campbell. It's Ryan Kennedy. And it is Stephen Ellis, our new web editor, Stephen Ellis, lurking in the shadows. A lot to talk about. We're sort of reacting in real time almost to the Tom Wilson news. So what we know so far, there was a big incident last night where there was a brawl. He drove Pavel Buknevich's head into the ice. He all, or he slammed it into the ice. There was also the getting tangled with Panarin, driving his head into the ice. A lot of heads being slammed into the ice. Right now, we know there's a fine for of maximum $5,000 for what was done to Buknevich. We don't know if that means nothing for the Panarin hit or not we're going to find out maybe we'll find out while we're podcasting but it's happening in real time here it's very interesting because we actually got a reader question from tristan peck asking us which team would fare the best in the 1980s i think all of us were going to say the washington capitals and here they are last night playing some violent hockey so i want to start the podcast talking about tom wilson we don't know if he's going to be punished uh, i think a lot of us assumed he was so what do you guys think ken we'll start with you do you think tom wilson should be suspended should it be a long suspension should it be something bigger? Are we looking at a player that needs to be not playing in the NHL anymore because he's becoming so dangerous? Where do you land on this complex topic? Yes, yes, and yes. Um, yeah, I mean, I, 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 I like Tom Wilson. He, he's a, I, I like what he brings to the Capitals. I think he's a really good player. I've talked to him several times. He's a, he's a nice guy off the ice, but he can't be rehabilitated. I really believe that. I really believe he cannot be rehabilitated at this point. If he hasn't gotten the message by now and he's still doing stuff like this, like it's, it's one thing to, to hit Oscar Sundquist, you know, the way he did, like that's happens in the middle of the game. You know, it's, it's, it's a hit. I mean, it's a dirty hit. It's a bad hit, but it's a hit. Right. And, and it, it's, it happens in real time. It's real quick, those sorts of things. But this kind of stuff is just, it's, it's just reprehensible. I mean, to me, the, 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 the starting point, like, like, and, and I'm very, very disappointed by the fact that he only got a fine for the Buknavich thing. Like if he had just, so, so we're going to be clear here. If he hadn't done anything to Panarin, if he hadn't, you know, if none of that had happened, he would be looking at a $5,000 fine this morning for what he did to Pavel Buknavich. Um, That's, that's incredible. And that to me, that's, mm-hmm part of the reason why Tom Wilson is still allowed to do what he does because he he's, you know, I mean, the player safety has sat down with this guy. They've talked to him. They want him in the game. They've aided and abetted him. They've been, in, they've been enablers in all of this, in my opinion, but um, I, I can't remember exactly where I was going with this, but to me, the suspension, like, like it starts at bare minimum, bare, bare minimum starts at, the last four games of the regular season and all of the playoffs. Um, to me, that's, that's the, that's the starting point where you go from there is, you know, I guess open to interpretation, but to me, unless that is the bare minimum of what this guy gets suspended, um, they're missing a huge opportunity. Mm. Yeah. It's interesting for me. I, I do think that, his actions warranted a suspension. For me, it would be rest of the regular season and probably one or two playoff games, just based on everything we've seen, you know, from NHL discipline in the past, where playoff games are weighted more, uh, and you could even 
point out that in a 56 game season, the, re- the rest of the regular season, you could kind of weight that more as well. You know, four is more like six, that sort of thing. And Wilson obviously has uh, quite the history with suspensions, even recently. So you factor that in as well. For me, obviously, the Panarin stuff was very reckless. And it's, it's difficult because it was, it was a heat of the moment thing. With Butchnevich, that was not heat of the moment because Butchnevich was just kind of lying there and he just gave him a shot. Obviously, that was a, a conscious decision by Wilson. Uh, whereas Panarin, there's a whole bunch of stuff going on. Bodies are flying all over the place. Um, you know, he's wrestling with Panarin. He's obviously a lot stronger than, than Panarin. Tom Wilson's stronger than, you know, sort of 95% of the league. Um, so I think where you ding him is on the recklessness where you say, look, even in the middle of a battle, you have to be conscience, conscious and respectful of your opponent, um, you know, who had lost his helmet. And I, I don't think Tom Wilson, you know, met that standard uh, in this melee. So for me, I, you know, you can, I, I can understand most people would say like, oh, it was malicious. He was trying to hurt him. And, and certainly with all the, the damage Tom Wilson has done to opponents over the years, uh, both consensual and non-consensual, I can understand people coming from, you know, from that, uh, that spot. But I, I, for me, I think you, you suspend him based on recklessness versus, you know, a, a Todd Bertuzzi situation where Todd Bertuzzi know, knew specifically what he was doing to Steve Moore. Right. And those are good points because, of course, I have already tweeted saying I saw some similarities in the physical action between the Bertuzzi and Moore and what Wilson did to Panarin. Obviously, you know, if you think of it as first degree murder, it's, it's like the premeditated element is what Bertuzzi had with Steve Moore. There was a lot more context going into that play. So you could see how that's perceived as more malicious, but the actual action of grabbing the hair and driving with a huge, big, powerful body to the ice, I thought was extremely dangerous. And it's interesting because, you know, I've been more of a, I don't want to say Wilson defender, but maybe Wilson understander than most uh, in the past. You know, I do a lot of research and stuff when it comes to player safety. Um, and I know that there are certain players that get a little more leeway because they're simply so big, you know, like Zidane Chara and Tom Wilson, Dustin Bufflin, those guys are so big that even when they hit someone clean, they hurt. They just, no matter what they do, they hurt people because they're so powerful. So there, are, there have been times when Wilson was on the right side of the law, even though it looked like he was doing terrible things. I don't think this is one of those times. And it's making me nervous that, you know, at, at the time of this recording, there's a fine announced, but the fact that there's no other discipline announced, I'm not even convinced now that there's going to be, which is scaring me because if you look at what's gone down, you know, there was the, there was the, the choice to grab the hair. And even in the heat of the moment, like you said, Ryan, to be more, you know, to be reckless in the heat of the moment. Uh, we know he's a repeat offender under the CBA. He just finished a suspension of seven games, which is, you know, weighted. That's a bigger suspension, really, in terms of the, how severe the punishment was because it's in a shortened season. So seven games in a 56-game season, that's one-eighth of the season for what he did to Brandon Carlos. We know he's a repeat offender. We know before that there was the 14-game suspension appealed down from 20. So the pattern is reckless. The same thing we saw from Rafi Torres, who was not showing he was learning. And to me, the problem with Tom Wilson is – like you said, Ken, he's a nice guy off the ice. And a lot of the times he's not deliberately hurting people. And sometimes his clean plays hurt people. But if you take 
if you t- if you if you were to say I even wrote this down as an idea, ban him for the rest of of the year 2021, which would be the, the regular season, the playoffs, and the start of next season. So then he's out of the game for almost a year. You're just taking a gun, you're putting it on the shelf for a year, and then you're taking the gun and putting it back, giving it back to the owner a year later. It's still a gun. And I don't know what to do about Tom Wilson anymore because I just don't think he can help himself, whether he's playing on the right side or the wrong side of the law. He's just too dangerous. And I don't know if you can have him in the game anymore because he's just, he will keep hurting people, whether it's, whether he never throws a dirty hit again, he will hurt another person. He will cause more concussions or broken bones, whatever it's going to be. He is just a danger. And it sucks because he is an exciting player to watch. His teammates love him. He's a nice guy on and off the or off the ice, but he's just so dangerous. And I don't know what to do with him anymore. I, I really don't. It's almost like you have a pit bull who, hey, the owner says, this dog is so loving. It's still a pit bull. It's still, it's in the nature of the animal to hurt people sometimes. And it's just dangerous. You have to put a muzzle on it. So I'm at a loss. And this is someone who's a defender often of Tom Wilson. I'm not this time. I'm truly at a loss. I, I agree, man. I, I think you have to, at the very least, Rafi, Tor- Rafi Torres him, give him the Rafi Torres treatment. Um, back in 2001, the Toronto Maple Leafs were playing the New Jersey Devils. And uh, Ty Domi was having a great series until, I believe, game five, when he just slammed his elbow into Scott Niedermeyer's head. Um probably cost the Leafs that series. In fact, I, I believe it did cost the Leafs that series. Uh, Domi was actually the better player in that series to that point. He was, he was, he was actually the better player. And it, it cost the Maple Leafs their season. It cost the Maple Leafs an opportunity to move on in the playoffs. And I think that the Washington Capitals are going to have to face the same consequences here. Their season could very well, you know, go down the, you know what, because they won't have Tom Wilson for the playoffs and they shouldn't have Tom Wilson for the playoffs. You know, in, in 1955, Rocket Richard punched a linesman and was, was suspended for the playoffs and the Montreal Canadiens lost in game seven of overtime against Detroit. They probably would have won with Rocket Richard in the lineup and they would have won six cups in a row instead of five. You know, it's time to, it's time to, to lower the boom on this guy and it's time to lower the boom on this organization that allows this to happen. Well said. I just want to um, add one thing here. It looks like uh, Samantha Pell from the Washington Post says, no suspension for Tom Wilson. The $5,000 fine is all that will stem from the scrum. My uh, Lord. Oh, it my folded God. up with this. Again, this is it. $5,000 fine for Tom Wilson. Nothing else coming. This is yeah. insanity. This is insanity. I, I can't believe yeah. it. I, I, I can't believe it. It's 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 almost scarier um, because basically what I'm get, what I'm going to assume without again I have to look at the footage again but from what I know they're probably going to argue that it was two players tangled up in the heat of battle and they fell that's I'm yeah. going to guess that's what they're going to say but that's I, I don't think it, I think it's taking too much responsibility away from Tom Wilson and how powerful he is compared to Artemi Panarin who's my size and I'm I'm five foot nine 180 pounds like it, it ugh, it's scary it's scary. It's hard because often the Department of Player Safety is beholden to the rule book. They're trying to call what's in the rule book. But in, I think sometimes you have to make exceptions, which they've done before. And I think he's a danger. So this is this is pretty disappointing. And, and I say this is someone who, compared to most people, is more of a defender of the Department of Player Safety because I think I'm often they're just they're they're bound by the rule book. Uh, I don't think this is one of those times. So that's pretty disappointing to hear. Uh, OK, well, 
now that we know that, we'll digest that and switch to something that's a little more upbeat. And that is the statistical leaderboard where we're seeing Connor McDavid doing unbelievable things. He's up to 90 points in 50 games. It was, it was cute. Like remember when he had like 81 and 46, it was like, Oh, can he make it to hundred? And now it's like, he's got six more games to get 10 points. Uh, and Austin Matthews is up to 39 goals in 48 games. So McDavid's scoring at the highest rate since Mario Lemieux in 95, 96. Austin Matthews is going to be the first player since Cam Neely. If he gets one more goal to get 40 goals in a season with 56 games or fewer played by the person. Um, so you can make a case. These are the two best individual seasons of this millennium so far. But of course, every time you try to bring it up, there are a lot of people out there, detractors who say, well, it's the North division. So easy. Uh, so easy. Uh, uh. So I want to know, are you guys among that mob that wants to poo poo these stats by pointing out how easy the North division is, or do you think these are legitimate? Ryan? No, I think it's legitimate. And, you know, you look at the North division and, I mean, there's there's decent teams and there's some good teams. You can say that for pretty much every division. You know, if, if Connor McDavid wasn't racking up goals against Ottawa or Vancouver, he would do it against Buffalo or San Jose. Um, actually, you know, if you look at what would have been the regular Pacific division, he would have played more bad teams. He would have played Los Angeles, San Jose, and Anaheim. Uh, so who knows? He might have had a better season uh, playing against that competition. And, you know, I mean, maybe even toss in Arizona in that mix in terms of just, um, you know, opportunities for him to really light it up. So, I, you know, I think we just have to look at this as a player who is hitting like another level. And I mean, we've seen this coming for years. Connor McDavid has always been that elite kid. He has been that next Sidney Crosby. He has lived up to the hype. And he hasn't always had the supporting cast. Now the supporting cast is there with him. You know, he's had dry saddle for, you know, years now, um, but he's got Darnell Nurse on the back end. He's got Tyson Berry on the back end. You know, Pugliarvi has stepped up at times. So we're seeing him in an environment where he can unleash his ultimate McDavid. And, you know, as for Austin Matthews, it's, it's kind of the same thing where in terms of his goal scoring prowess and his release, he is now getting the ice time that he didn't get early in his career. He's being put in more situations where he can essentially terrorize goaltenders with that shot of his and it's coming through. So to me, you know, if, like I said, if it wasn't North that these guys are beating up on, they would be beating up on the rest of the league. And uh, you know, I mean, Again, you know, like Alex Ovechkin could have 50 goals in 56 games. He's been playing Buffalo and New Jersey and Philadelphia uh, all season. So I, I think what they're doing is legit and it should be celebrated. Okay, guys, before I uh, talk about this, I just, I just want to come clean here. Um, I believe today is a very, very dark day for the National Hockey League. I believe it's a very dark day for hockey. I believe it's a dark day for the sport. And I, I'm, I'm having a tough time talking about goals and assists and points and rookies and having fun on this broadcast when, when this is when something like this has happened. So, but I, I'm, I'm going to try, but I, I had to get that out. I'm sorry. Um, yeah. Uh, with respect to uh, Connor McDavid and, and, and Austin Matthews. Um, yeah. I mean, first of all, you can only play the games that are in front of you, right? Like you can only, you can only play the game that's in front of you. 
it's not their fault that the North division scores a lot of goals and is loosey goosey and that kind of thing and has some rather questionable goaltending at times. Um, you know, back in the forties and fifties, when guys like Gordy Howe and Rocket Richard were doing it, basically half the league was really good and half the league was terrible, like really, really bad. And they were playing those guys like 10 times a year, 14 times a year. And nobody has tarnished that legacy. I mean, Wayne Gretzky played in the eighties. There were some terrible, 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 terrible teams in the eighties. You know, I mean, I mean now like the parody in the NHL, you could argue has never been higher, right? There's never been less of a gap between the top teams and the bottom teams in the NHL than there is right here, right now in this, in this era. Right. Um, That wasn't the case you know, when a lot of these other guys were putting up their big numbers as well. So I don't think it has anything to do with it. They're having, you know, I mean, if you, if you can't celebrate and I'm having a tough time celebrating it today, but if you can't celebrate that, you know, Connor McDavid might have a hundred points this year and Austin Matthews is one of the greatest goals has, is having one of the greatest goal scoring seasons in the history of the game, then uh, yeah. I mean, you can't really celebrate much. Okay. I gotcha. Um, I'm just getting a bit of information there more about the situation um, with, with what happened and the suspension. Um, and it's confirming my understanding that um, it, uh, it, it was about the sort of battle of the fall and also the fact that Panarin was willingly engaging in uh, the, the dispute, if you will. So no, I don't necessarily agree. And I, I appreciate uh, Kenny, you powering through despite feeling, pretty angry right now uh, just channel it channel it man you just yeah okay <laughs> we'll take it um and i i think you make good points ken especially if you look at you know previous eras it's like people don't get angry at the boston bruins for winning the stanley cup in 1970 when they faced a team and you know that was when an expansion team got a bye to the finals because that entire division the new division of teams was guaranteed to get a Stanley cup finalist. St. Louis blues made the cup final, what three years in a row. People don't complain about that. And similar, right. It was a product of realignment. It wasn't fair. Um, and if you want to cherry pick, you know, I, I just did it as an example. I looked at Wayne Gretzky's 92 goal season. Well, he had 13 goals and 22 points in eight games against the LA Kings who were 17 games under 500. So, Oh no, Gretzky, he got to play the Kings a whole bunch of times. You got to play them eight games. He had 13 goals and they were a terrible team. Well, there are terrible teams every season in every division, in every version of the NHL. So I think it's, I do think it's cherry picking to worry about the North division this year, especially we'll get into it later. Some of the bad teams are not playing so badly anymore. Um, and also just the fact that it's not like this is a revelation that McDavid and Matthews are good in the, the three seasons combined going into this one, McDavid was second in the league in points per 60. Matthews was first in goals per 60. They were at the top of their respective, you know, skill sets. They were the elite players in the league. So it's like, what's the big deal? They're good. Yeah. Uh, next up, let's talk about the Calder trophy. So it's been actually quietly, maybe not so quietly anymore, but a, a really tight race. We have Kirill Kaprizov, delivering on the expectations everyone knew he would. Uh, he's the leader on the surface and, you know, big stats. He's got 24 goals, 45 points. He's leading rookies in all those major categories. We have Jason Robertson in Dallas having a tremendous season. If you look at the per 60 minutes production, he's up there with the elite players in the league, like McDavid and Matthews and Marner, McKinnon, Marshan, all these guys whose last names start with M apparently. Uh, so he's right in the mix. And of course, we also have Alex Nadelkovic, who 
is posting some tremendous numbers as well, right near the top of the league in terms of his, his per game production, the smaller sample size. So we'll start with you, Ryan. Where do you land in the Calder debate? Is it Kaprizov? Is it Robertson? Is it Adelkovic? Or is it someone else? I feel like it's still Kaprizov based on the impact he has had on that Minnesota team. And obviously he's not the only reason they have become one of the most exciting franchises in the NHL. You know, you obviously have to look at uh, Kevin Fiala and Joel Erickson Eck and, uh, you know, a handful of other players. But, I mean, Kaprizov has brought a wow factor to Minnesota. He's producing – uh, having said that, I think Jason Robertson is close uh, when it comes to forwards. And, you know, if you look at goals above replacement, uh, they're, they're like neck and neck right now. And part of me wants to wait until the season's over, because if Jason Robertson can help Dallas get into the playoffs, and I know they, and they have no margin of error right now, uh, but if he can help them get in, that's a pretty good tick of the box. And then, of course, as you mentioned, Alex Nedeljkovic, I mean, Carolina needed him. You know, they had some goaltending injuries. He stepped in and played really well. And as you mentioned, you know, the numbers are fantastic. Um, you know, we don't see a lot of goalies win the Calder. Steve Mason was the last one. Um, but I, I, I feel like at this point, I wouldn't be mad Whoever wins, I think it's a really even race, but I feel like it's still going to be Kaprizov because he's been the rookie that has kind of captured the imagination of the hockey world. And because the voting pool is so much smaller this year, um, there's going to be a let it's less of a sample size. So it's not going to take much for Kaprizov to get that sort of plurality of votes he needs. And, and I think, you know, he deserves it. There's a couple of guys that deserve it, but I think Kaprizov, I mean, can't argue with it. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. I think, I think though, like it's gone from being a slam dunk to being a, I don't know what, a three point shot. I don't know. Like, I don't know how you equate that, but I think there was a time for most of this season when we all thought, you know, it's, it's Kirill Kaprizov. And that's, that's that. I mean, there's not even a debate like a month ago, we weren't even probably going to be having this debate, you know, but now we are because both of these guys have come in, they've both scored and they've both been very consistent and they both scored goals that matter. Like, that's the thing to me is these guys get points that matter. Like, you know, I mean, in, in points that put the Dallas stars ahead, uh, Robertson has seven goals and eight assists, 15 points on goals that have put them ahead in games, you know, and, and Kaprizov's got nine, eight and 17 in that category, you know? So to me, you know, these guys are, are contributing and, and, you know, you bring in Nadelkovic as well. I mean, these guys aren't just putting up good numbers for bad teams that are going nowhere um, or, or really good teams where they're getting a ton of help or whatever, they're driving it. Like they're, that's the thing that I, that, that, that I find really impressive is, is, you know, the Minnesota wild are in the playoffs and in the thick of the, this division because of Kirill Kaprizov in a lot of ways, you know, Jason Robertson is contributing to the Dallas stars, making a very serious run for the playoffs. Nadelkovic, as you said, as you said, Ryan, you know, he, He's, you know, they're in, are they in first place? They're, no, I think Vegas is still in first place overall, but they're, 
very close to being in first place overall in the NHL. And a big part of that is because of what Nedeljkovic has come in, come in and done the last little while. For me, I'm not sure the body of work for Nedeljkovic is big enough. He's started 22 games, I think. Um, not sure that's big enough. I mean, if he plays the rest of the games, what he played like maybe 25, 26. Um, not sure that's a big enough sample size. But to me, it's still cappers off, but it's, it's far closer and it's far more debatable now than it has ever been at any point in the season. Okay. Yeah. Very, very good points, guys. Um, you know, Steven says the Canes are first. There you go. Um, yeah. It's interesting. I, I do think these guys are going to be the, the three finalists. Um, to me, I lean slightly toward captors. I've even though Robertson's been so impressive. Another player who's been one of the most impressive in the league this year is Rupe Hintz, and he's Robertson's line mate. So they're sort of influencing each other, whereas Kirill Kaprizov hasn't had quite as much help. He's been more of a driver of play on his own. He's had, also had tougher minutes to play, from what I understand at least, than uh, Jason Robertson has. So I lean slightly towards Kaprizov and Delkovic. I think Delkovic is going to get uh, Jordan Bennington. So if you look at Bennington, the year that Elias Pettersson won the call there 2019, if that was a full season that Bennington played, he probably would have won it. He was so good. And I think Nedeljkovic, if he played at this level and it was an 82-game season, he had a whole bunch more runway to keep playing at this level. Maybe he takes it, but he kind of got the job a little too late in the season. So he gradually stole it and Peter Mrazek got hurt and he's so slowly sort of taken over. So I think he got too good too late. And that's why I lean slightly toward Kirill Kaprizov. Uh, Ryan Miller has announced officially he's going to be retiring after the season. Uh, he's past the 390 win mark. He's almost at 400, 391, I think, is last I saw. He was at um, 14th all-time. And he does have a Vezina Trophy. He has an MVP award at the Olympics. I'm assuming he's not a Hall, a Hall of Famer, but he feels like he's at least worthy of a fringe discussion. So, Kenny, am I right? Is he not a Hall of Famer? Is he a Hall of Very Gooder? Or is he an underrated goaltender? I think he's probably somewhere between Hall of Fame and Hall of Really Good. Like, he's better than really good. I, I would have liked to have seen him get to 400 wins. I think that might have uh, been a benchmark that people could have could have gone back to and said, okay, that, that you know, that gets him in. Um, I, I think he's borderline. I, I, he's one of those guys, again, that I wouldn't be outraged if he got in, but I, I he's not in my Hall of Fame. Um uh, you know, hasn't, hasn't won a cup, obviously. I mean, that's, that's a product of the teams he played for. Um, you know, he, he, he was, you know, very close to winning a gold medal in the, you know, painfully, painfully close to winning a gold medal in the, in the, in the, uh, in the Olympics. Um, you know, a hall of really excellent, but maybe not quite good enough to be in the hall, hall guy. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, there's some interesting benchmarks that Miller has. All-time winningest goalie uh, amongst American-born players. Uh, so he's got that going for him. Uh, probably the best college goaltender of all time based on what he did at Michigan State. And, you know, as you mentioned, Olympic duty, Vesna Trophy. You know, he's probably better than some of the goalies that are in the Hall of Fame. Oh, yeah. But <laughs> as we've said before, you, you know, you, you can't sort of – base it off that uh, I do think he's one of those guys where he's he's worth having the conversation but based on how many people get into the hall of fame each year I don't know if he makes the cut but I mean he's a slam dunk you know U.S. hockey hall of fame hall of famer maybe even an international hockey hall of fame uh, inductee in the future as well based on his resume there 
Um, but I, I, I think he's definitely worthy of uh, consideration. Okay. Yeah. I, I think I'm with you guys. You know, if you look at his career, it's 18 years, first team all-star one time in 18 years. So he was only considered among the two best players at his position once in 18 years. Um, and to me, I, I do think if Miller had just played on some better teams, maybe we would speak differently about him, but he, we never got to see truly what he was in high stakes games in a bigger sample size. Obviously he delivered in the Olympics. He was tremendous. He was unbelievable. He was basically 1996 world cup. Mike Richter did everything but win. He, he did the same, had that same amazing run felt almost invincible, fell one goal short. But if you look in his career, he only made the playoffs seven times in 18 years and only six as a starter. He only got 47 playoff games in his career. And for perspective, Andre Vasilevsky is 14 years younger. In the last three years alone, he's played 46 playoff games. So we just didn't get to see Miller on that big stage, get a chance to be a winner. And without the wins on the resume, without the you know playoff experience, he really just didn't get to play in the playoffs very much. It's hard to rate him as a Hall of Famer, but still a very good career. But before anyone of the caliber of Ryan Miller gets in the Hall of Fame, justice for Tom Barrasso. Let's put aside the media grudge. We're better than this. Who cares if he didn't like us? He's a Hall of Famer. Next up, we've got the Ottawa Senators. So this sort of ties to the discussion about the North Division being easy. Of course, the Oilers wrapped up their schedule against Ottawa early. Uh, but the Senators at one point, were, their record was 2-11-1. Since then, they're 18-16-4. So we're not just talking about a team that's gotten a little bit better. Like That's significantly better. They're, they're performing at a rate that they would have been at the fringe of the playoff picture playing that well. So I know, Ken, you always talk about this teams that go on the late season surge when it doesn't matter. So do you put the Senators in that category or is the sample size now big enough because that's 38 games? Do you believe this is legitimate promise? What do you, what do you think, Kenny? Yeah, I mean, I mean, you, you're right, Matt. I, I've, I've, I've historically put zero, like absolutely zero stock into these late season runs by teams that are already out of the playoffs because usually the next year they end up going back to being what they were and and not and not the team that we saw you know down the stretch after all the heat was off. But I I, I do feel differently about this team. I you know because for me the Ottawa Senators were out of the playoff race before the season started. You know, they had, you know, I mean, they were never, you know, I mean, they, they did, they were never really, you know, they were never in the playoffs to start with. We were always talking about them as being one of the worst teams. And, and, and I mean, I just think that, you know, the way they, they play the game, uh, they're much, you know, they're a lot, they're a lot better structured. Um, you know, they just stay in games. Now they hang in games, they come back in games, um, they're just showing a lot of hallmarks of a team that is starting to really put it together. And with a lot of young guys that are really starting to find their stride. So, I, I mean, I think, I think there's something to be said for that. Um, usually with these teams, it's, it's teams that are already established and, you know, they do go on one of these runs, but this is a team that is, you know, that is growing, you know, they're growing together. They're, they're, they're making something happen together and they're, they're experiencing it together. They're getting better together. So I, you know, I mean, and I mean, we, we all knew what the Ottawa senators were before the season, they were going to be a team that wasn't probably wasn't going to challenge for a playoff spot, which they're not. And they were, they were going to be a team that's, that's going to be good in a couple of years and they're tracking on that. So I, I don't see any reason to disagree with that. Yeah, I would agree. I think when you look at this Ottawa team, 
what's the most positive about this season is the fact that they have been growing the way that we hoped that they would. And if you look at their leading scorers, it's Brady Kachuk, it's Drake Batherson, it's Josh Norris, and then obviously Thomas Shabbat, who's actually not that old himself. It feels like Thomas Shabbat has been there forever, but uh, you know, like he's still in his like early to mid twenties. Um, yeah, they took their lumps early. They were they were learning together. They were learning how to play. You know, you had all those guys. You had Tim Stutzla as well. You know, I think it's really heartening that they've gotten better as the season has gone on. And they've gotten the results. I mean, they were never an easy out, even at the beginning of the year. They gave top teams in their division fits. I mean, they gave Toronto fits right at the beginning of the year. And that was a, that was a great positive. As time went on, I think DJ Smith and his, his staff have done an amazing job at helping these kids learn how to win and learn how to play in the NHL night after night. And the fact that their record reflects that I think is an amazing sign. And it's, I mean, it's super positive news for this franchise heading into next year where expectations are going to be higher. Um, but on the other hand, you're going to have even more growth from Kachuk, Norris, Batherson, Stutzla, you know, even Eric Bronstrom, uh, who hasn't had as much of an impact, but he's a defenseman. They're always going to take longer. Um, you know, they've still got kids coming. You're going to get more Jake Sanders. Well, Jake Sanders is not there yet, but you're going to get more Shane Pinto, Jacob Bernard Docker. You know, there's a lot of exciting players coming to the Senators. And, you know, we're, we're only seeing the beginning here. So I think it's a, it's a very positive season. You're muted, Matt. I was <laughs> muted. Sorry. <laughs> My daughter was running upstairs. I could hear her stomping around. So I just, uh, I hit the old mute and I forgot I was muted. Uh, yeah, I, I, for the most part, agree with you guys, especially it's encouraging to see it's the young guys that are driving the bus now with you know, Norris having great season, Batherson, Kachuk, and Shabbat, like you guys said. And, and also Artem Zoop, that guy has been a real catalyst. Since he showed up, he formed a really strong pair with Mike Riley, and he's still forming a strong pair now with Eric Brandstrom. And it's helping Brandstrom, I think, get his confidence. He's now playing more entrenched in a full-time role instead of being stuck in that taxi squad purgatory. Uh, and I looked at the record since February 9th when they started this better run and their 18th in possession, they still allow a fair amount of shots, but they're almost middle of the pack in, in chances and shots allowed. So they're showing signs uh, defensively of improving. So I, I do think this is legitimate improvement. The tough part next season is going to be, you know, expectations might be raised by the way this season has finished for Ottawa. But now we're assuming that the realignment will be undone. Seattle comes in, all the divisions revert to their normal uh, configuration. And the Senators are now sharing a division with Tampa, Florida, Toronto, Boston. So it's going to get tougher. As much as we were saying, you know, we, we were saying, don't worry about the North Division being easy, but compared to having those as the top four teams next year, it's going to be a challenge for the Senators, I think. And even Montreal is still a competitive team. So that's going to be a, a much bigger test, I think, than what they're facing in the North right now. Um, and I think it's possible we actually don't see them improve in the standings next year, but I still think they're showing legitimate positive signs. So let's do some listener mailbag questions. Now. The first one is from Phil's hockey page. Phil wants to know, how do you view the New York Rangers season? Slow start. Good, but not quite good enough. And, and slow finish finished about where we're, uh, where expected. He says um, to me, this was pretty much the team I expected, which was extremely exciting, but weak defensively. That's what they were last year. Um, they had a slow start 
because of course Mika Zvanejad had the COVID scare at the beginning of the year, which I think that's why he started the season so slow. He was getting his body up to speed. Of course, Panarin left with the controversy, the wanting to protect his family for his comments, uh, political comments. So that obviously got the Rangers off to a slow start. But what's interesting is, so are they a good offensive team and a below average defensive team? Yes. But the defensive part of the game last year, they were atrocious, like among the very worst in the league. This year, they're merely below average defensively. So they've they've really hiked up all their, in terms of chances allowed and shots, high danger, all that stuff. It's more middle of the pack, slightly below average. So that's quite an improvement. And I think that's a result of obviously Adam Fox having a tremendous season, maybe Norris Trophy, Keandre Miller really bringing stability and also Ryan Lindgren. So that defense core looks a lot better. I think we're seeing signs of legitimate improvement. And what I just said about Ottawa, it's the opposite for the Rangers. I think they're going to be helped by going back to the traditional divisional format next year. Metro is still tough, but it just, the way the East is configured this year, it's like the Rangers were, you know, a good team was guaranteed to miss the playoffs no matter what. And two good teams really missed the playoffs. So I think the Rangers will be in better shape next year. And they're showing under the hood signs of improvement. What say you can I think, I think you have to, you have to put it in the context of expectation. And I, I, I would argue that, you know, you can, you could probably make the argument that the New York Rangers have exceeded expectations this year, um, given everything that, that, you know, that was thrown at them and, and, you know, the division and Zibanejad and everything you could probably, and, and the way Adam Fox has played, I mean, did anybody before the season have Adam Fox in the Norris trophy conversation? Well, he's in it now and he, he may very well end up winning it. Um, you know, so I think when you, when you measure it against what was expected of this team, absolutely this season, I, I think that the Rangers can draw a ton out of this season. You know, Lafreniere got his reps in, started very, very slow, like molasses speed slow, but has been, you know, has really picked it up. Um, you know, some of the younger players have stepped up. I, I think that all the markers of this season are, are trending in the right direction. And uh, if I'm an, if I'm if I'm a New York Rangers fan, I'm pretty excited about what what they're putting together. Yeah, I agree. And the fact that the Rangers, like last night, was they still technically had a chance to be in the playoffs. It ended because the you know the Bruins won. Um, but the fact that they were playing meaningful games basically all season is fantastic because. You know, this is a team built towards the future, even though they got Panarin as a free agent, that kind of messed up the timeline a bit and you know, maybe accelerated some expectations. But, you know, for me, this season was all about playing meaningful games for the young guys, learning uh, about the NHL schedule, learning to compete. You know, uh, you know, Coach David Quinn, he said something pretty interesting uh, a couple of weeks ago on a conference call about Alexi Lafreniere saying, you know, he now understands what kind of work ethic it takes to succeed in the NHL. Lafreniere was always trying to work hard. You know, it was never a question of if he was working hard, but how he was working. In the second half, it started to click for the teenager. And that's why we're seeing him have more success offensively now. And, you know, I think it's great the other night that him and Capo Caco connected for a fantastic two-on-one goal. Um, that's what you want to see if you're a Rangers fan. I mean, you know what Panarin can do, um, but you want to see that ceiling Lafreniere and, and Capricco, uh, because, you know, they're, they're the future up front for you. And as you guys mentioned, you know, Adam Fox hit another level this year. Keandre Miller 
got his feet wet, played solid, established himself in New York, uh, which I think is a tremendous positive. You know, Igor Shesterkin got a bunch of reps. That's going to be great for them in net. So, again, you're, you're still looking towards the future. I didn't think they were necessarily a playoff team, but this is kind of where I hoped they would be, which is a team that ultimately fell short but learned a lot and now has that hunger where they can look at each other in the offseason and say, we're not far, not far off. And if we keep developing, we can be right in the thick of it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Next question is from Frank Zamora. Frank wants to know, when should you start growing your playoff beard? When you clinch, when the regular season is over, or when the playoffs actually start? As a beard guy, I've had a beard for like, I don't know, 12 years or something. So I have a lot of beard thoughts. To me, it's got to be game one of the playoffs. I think you want the blank slate and like you shave right before the first game. And that way your, your beard is your badge of honor. It tells you exactly how far you've gone in the playoffs. That's what I would do. And I always say, even if I was on, like if I went on the show Survivor, which I hope to someday, I would like want to shave for day one of the island. Because again, it's your badge of honor, how long that beard gets. So I, I think right before the ga- game one of the playoffs, Ken. Yeah, I agree. It's it's a playoff beard. It's not a clinching beard. It's not a, you know, anything. It's a playoff beard. You start it just be the day of, I, I if I were an NHL player, which I came very close to being, um, <laughs> I would shave the day, the lot, the day before my first game. Um, and yeah, because it's, yeah, like I said, it's a, it's a playoff beard and, and, you know, then, then when you're at the point where it's all down your neck and looks awful and everything, you know, you've really accomplished something. Mm. I agree with you guys, but I also want to take consideration for those of us that, uh, you know, or, or for people unlike us that are not Chia pets, like I could grow (laughs) a beard by the end of this podcast. (laughs) Um, so I feel that I would make an allowance for players, particularly young players, that they could start when the team clinches, you know, unless you play for like Tampa Bay and you clinch in, you know, like March in a regular season. Um, But, you know, if you clinch like a week or two beforehand and you're not like the most like follically enhanced, uh, I'm willing to make that exception. But otherwise, I agree with you guys. First day is the way to go. Okay, we'll do one more Listener question, and then we'll get to our rapid fire game. This one's from Hansa Rappik. And Hansa wants to know, uh, how about the Bruins and the signing of their UFAs? Should they re-sign Rask, Krejci, and Hall? And how? Uh, I think they can do it. So we know that Jeremy Swayman has made things interesting in net for Boston. So he's basically going to push Yaroslav Halak out. Swayman's been too good. It doesn't make sense to pay Yaroslav Halak now to be the backup when Swayman can be sort of the apprentice, especially because it's not like one of those young guys that isn't going to get his reps. Boston likes to rest rest Tuka Rask so Swayman could still start like 33 games or something next year right uh, and we know Rask he doesn't have any leverage because he's been very open about the fact that he only wants to be a Boston Bruin or he retires that really hurts him in negotiations the Bruin can say well take it or leave it we'll give you a, a hometown discount type of contract or you can go play elsewhere uh, we know that they have 32 million dollars in cap space they have to re-sign Brandon Carlo who's an RFA but I still think because the fact that Rask is probably going to take a discount I think they can afford to bring back the second line. So Craig Smith is re-signed, but they're seeing encouraging things from Hall, Craig Jean Smith, and it's changing their identity. The Bruins have been one of the best teams in the league the last several weeks, right? Uh, and we know how badly they need that secondary scoring. So I think they're going to find a way. With Taylor Hall, he's at a point now where he wants to win so badly. He's made decent money. 
but he's just not getting to experience the winning life. And what are the Bruins known for? Winning and having a culture in which guys take pay, cut, pay cuts, right? And if there's, a, if there's a perfect candidate to be willing to do that, who's going to market? Maybe it is Taylor Hall now who's fed up of losing. And I think he's getting a taste of this winning culture versus, you know, taking the good chunk of change to play on a bad team and what it did to his confidence. He might be willing to come for, you know, 6 million or something a year. So I'm going to predict that they do bring back Rask and Krejci, maybe Krejci on a really short-term deal to keep the, keep the band together for another year or something and Taylor Hall. So, yeah, I had a lot to say there because I actually just wrote about it for our upcoming, uh, draft preview so that's why i had like a whole bunch of points there but uh hopefully there's some meat left on the bone ryan yeah i i agree with your sentiment i believe that the key sort of is with Krejci. i would only do a one-year deal uh or i might walk just based on his age and he's put a lot of hard miles on his body um, and, you know, he, ha- he, he struggled this season until, you know, quite recently, I think, you know, Taylor Hall was, was perfect for him. Um, so it, it's nice. I, I think it's also going to depend on what the Bruins do in the playoffs this year. You know, if they make a long run, if they win it all, uh, which is, you know, certainly possible, um, then you, you might say to yourself like, okay, well, you know, do we just sort of look ahead to the next generation? And, you know, if we can get Rask on a, a, a team-friendly discount, uh, you know, that's great, but we're pretty confident in Jeremy Swayman, you know, going forward. Um, I, I think that could really sort of change the, the dynamic depending on how they do. Uh, but, I mean, yeah, it's, it's working real well since the trade deadline. So if you can keep that group together, why not? Yeah, and I, and I mean, the Bruins are really uniquely positioned, I think, to to be able to do something like this, because, like you said, Matt, they've established a culture in their organization where players either take, you know, less money to stay there or they go elsewhere. I mean, how, how can, you know, how can Taylor Hall say I'm worth more than Brad Marchand or or Patrice Bergeron? I mean, those guys are underpaid. Those guys are underpaid. Tuka Rask was underpaid and he'll continue to be underpaid probably. I, I mean, and, and they do it because they've, you know, they're one of the organizations that has said, you know, regardless of what the salary cap is and, and, you know, they're always close to it because they have so many good players. It's like, no, we, we put a value on our players. Um, you take it and you stay and you have a chance to win the cup every year or, or, okay, off you go and good luck. And, and uh, have fun playing for, a, you know, a team that never makes the playoffs. So I, I believe they're uniquely positioned to be able to do it. I believe they're all, all three of the players involved probably understand that. No, absolutely understand that. And, you know, will be willing to take it. Like if I'm, if I'm the Boston Bruins, I, I don't give Tuka Rask any more than a series of one-year deals leading into his retirement now. Why would you do anything other than that? I mean, as Matt said, he's already said, I'm here or I'm, or I'm done, you know? So there's so few times that you have leverage in contract negotiations. You should use it, you know, especially since you've got, you know, Dan Vladar and, and uh, Jeremy Swayman who have shown a lot of really good things, you know, as far as the future's concerned uh, with Krejci and Hall, like, you know, I mean, same thing, same thing, you, you know, and Taylor Hall, look, Taylor, Taylor, if I'm the Boston Bruins, I go to Taylor Hall and I say, look, Taylor, all you've done in your career is lose. You know, you've been on teams that have been terrible. You have a chance to stay here, to contribute to a team, to be part of something, not to have to be the guy 
on a team that's going to be really, really good, probably for the next couple of years that has a, a decent Stanley Cup window still. Um, and if you want to do that, here's the number. Mm-hmm. If you don't, okay, see ya. Yeah. Real shades of Phil Kessel when he went to Pittsburgh, right? And it transformed him, not having to be the guy anymore. And he, yeah. he became a pretty big member of some um, big-time cup-winning playoff runs. And what's interesting about the Bruins, too, is their team, this is a great year to have UFAs because it really gives them an advantage in the expansion draft. They don't have to sign any of these guys. They can make handshake agreements with all of them. It allows them to protect a whole bunch of other players that wouldn't necessarily be able to protect. I still think, I was looking at the other day, I think they're going to still lose a decent forward, maybe of the ilk of, let's say, Nick Ritchie. So if you lose, let's say, Nick Ritchie to Seattle, it just it strengthens the need to stay strong on the left side, which is another reason to bring back Taylor Hall. Uh, okay, Kenny, let's finish it off with the rapid fire. If you can channel your anger and just gut it out for another couple minutes, then we'll be good to go. Yeah, we got it. Okay. Okay. So the first question, rapid fire. Okay. And I will answer second. Ryan, you answer first. Okay. Perfect. Okay. So give me one line from your favorite movie that tells us, that tells everyone what movie it is without giving the title. Okay. We were somewhere outside of Barstow on the edge of the desert when the drugs began to take hold. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Fear and loathing in Las Vegas. Yeah. I knew it. I knew it. Uh, for me, uh, okay, I'll say, uh, well, you know, for me, the action is the juice. I'm in. That's Tom Sizemore okay, in Heat. What? What's that? That's Tom Sizemore in Heat when De Niro's okay. asking him if he's going to go through with the bank job. All right. I would have been over two for both of those. Um, Pez. Cherry flavored Pez, no question about it. Oh, I don't know. Stand by me. Oh, I haven't uh, watched it for a while. Okay. It's been a while since right. I've watched it. Look at this. Green Goblin Jr. was, I don't know, some somebody. I'm the only it. Spider-Man 3 fan of all time, I think. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Be quiet, Steven. Okay. Question number two. Uh, as of today, as of this moment. Mitch Marner and Jack Eichel have exactly the same number of po- of career points, 355. Jack Eichel's done it in 375, 375 games. Uh, Mitch Marner's done it in 351 games. With the, Armed with that knowledge, who should the Buffalo Sabres have taken with the second overall pick in 2015? Well, I mean... Armed with that knowledge, you would say, Marner, but the draft Nick in me says you always take the center over the winger. So I'm really torn on that. I, I think Buffalo still made the right call. They just they don't have the supporting cast that you know that Marner has in Toronto. Yeah, I'll say Eichel, even the fact that Eichel's even close to Marner, given how bad Buffalo's been, is a testament to Eichel's ability. So I think if you switch roles, Marner would just be having a, a, a hell of a time in Buffalo. And then, you know, if you put Eichel on the right wing in Toronto with Matthews, he'd be getting crazy point totals as well. So I still think Eichel's the pick, not Eichel's fault. I still do too. I, I think Eichel's the guy. But to me, I mean, you'd have a lot less drama with Mitch Marner in Buffalo. Mm-hmm. I, I Like Marner just doesn't seem like the kind of guy who would start belly aching about what he's going through he just kind of keep keep plowing through and keep playing and keep trying to get better so um but but i think you know still jack eichel will probably would have been the guy um what movie makes you cry uh coco 
I've seen that twice now because of my kids. Uh, and also a league of their own uh, the, for the final scene with the ball drop. Nice. Okay. I feel like this this is ringing a bell. I feel like we've done this question, but I don't know 100%. It, it's something, something about a- either that or having deja vu. Either way, I'll say Toy Story 3, absolute puddle. When Andy, when Andy at the end decides to give away his toys to the little girl on the lawn on his way to college. I'm just, I, and I even, I saw it twice in one day because my daughter watched it. And like both times I cried. I was like, come on. Yeah. Toy Story 3. Uh, Saving Private Ryan. Uh, that last scene in the, in the graveyard when he's, when, uh, when he's the, the, you know, sort of the old man and he's like, was I a good man in my life? Did I, you know, and that gets me every time too. Um, okay. There's going to be a lot of candidates in this category, but we know that the day after the regular season ends, somebody's getting fired. Some coach is getting fired. Who's it going to be? I'm going to say Paul Maurice, especially because Winnipeg is probably going to get trucked in the first round of the playoffs. He's off the board a little bit. Is that? I said off the board a little bit. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I just think it's time. I think they got to do something. Uh, I will say Travis Green. I'm not a huge intangibles guy, but if you look at – I was watching a recent game where Travis Green – it was actually my, my father-in-law pointed this out. He was reaming out the Canucks players, yeah. and they, were just, they had this vacant look. They weren't even listening to him. He's lost the room. Travis Green. Yeah. I'm going to say John Tortorella, and, and it won't be fired because his contract will be up, but I, I think it's – I think now, you know – it's hard to defend, you know, and he's been the best coach they've ever had, but they're in last place. They're behind Detroit right now. So um, I think that's, that's what it'll be. Okay. Last question. And I wrote this question before last, before everything that happened last night, but who would win a fight between Foghorn Leghorn and the Tasmanian double? Oh, Tasmanian double. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Cause he'd go right for the legs. Foghorn Leghorn is all he's all top heavy he's he's still a rooster at the end of the day okay yeah and you know I want to say Foghorn Leghorn I'm a defender of Foghorn Leghorn because I have the same build as him like I have a sway back and my butt sticks out like Foghorn Leghorn you could rest a drink on my butt but uh it's his dimensions like specifically he's limited by his cart the way he's drawn so he can't reach Tasmanian devil because you think about the way he's drawn like he's so tall and he's stiff at the front like he literally can't bend down he doesn't have the anatomy to bend down like Tasmanian devil could just work just punch him in the stomach over and over and he can't even be like I'll say I say, I can't reach you you wouldn't be able to do <laughs> yeah, it yeah leverage Tasmanian devil is low to the ground he's spinning around yeah it's game over and for, yeah, it's but like see, a UFC. To, me, to me I'm gonna go with foghorn leghorn because to me Tas- the Tasmanian devil is like he's like that that hockey player that skates around and does nothing and like looks like he's working really hard like this guy just spins around and and i, I just get the feeling foghorn Leghorn would just take one of his big feet and boot him while he was spinning around <laughs> the fight would be over anyways that's it all righty well thanks for that ken some good questions i'm still thinking that crying one like either that's the biggest case of deja vu i've ever had or I, and I, I think we also all gave the same answer which is pretty cool Uh, But maybe your listener can tell us if it's true. (laughs) Thank you for listening, everybody, and watching. And we will be back. We're going to start getting ready to preview the playoffs pretty soon. So stay tuned for that. Thank you for listening to the Hockey News Podcast. Make sure to check out THN.com slash subscribe to get issues of the Hockey News Magazine delivered right to your mailbox.